Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies, ATRA, Sustainable Agriculture Program, with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Heather Lingle with NCAT. In this episode, Guy Ames, horticulture specialist with NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program, talks with Jared M. Phillips, author of the new book, Hip Billies, Deep Revolution in the Arkansas Ozarks. In his book, Jared writes about the back to the land movement of the 60s and 70s and how that counterculture affected the Arkansas Ozarks. Jared holds a doctorate in American history and is assistant professor of international studies at the University of Arkansas. He lives and works on a small traditional farm outside of Prairie Grove, Arkansas. Guy Ames works out of NCAT Southeastern Regional Office in Fayetteville, Arkansas. In this podcast, Guy and Jared also talk about the value of slowing down and working on an appropriate scale while comparing traditional farm practices to newer, more, quote, efficient ones. Let's listen. Okay, I'm Guy Ames. I'm a horticulturist with the uh, National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA program, and we're here uh, with Jared Phillips, Dr. Jared Phillips, a historian with the, at the University of Arkansas. And uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, hippies or hipbillies, if you will, history and sustainable agriculture. Uh, I'm here at the Southeast office, ATRA, by the way, and uh, particularly at Arkansas, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And uh, two things of interest here, it's uh, uh, in the South, which is always a struggle for agriculture, but also this particular area, the Ozarks, was a, uh, a center of the back to the land movement in the 60s and 70s, and maybe a little one before that. Is that right, Jared? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Let's start with your book. So you have a book that's just about to hit the shelves. Is there still shelves? Is I don't know if there's still shelves anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the book is coming out April 15th, I think is the date I've been given. And the uh, book is called? The book is called Hip Billies, Deep Revolution in the Arkansas Ozarks. And it tries to tell a part of the story of the Back to the Land movement um, in the Arkansas Ozarks from the late 60s through the early 1980s. Cool. And anything that makes it different, how's it tied into the larger Back to the Land movement in that same period, the 60s and 70s? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, on the one hand, so on one part of that, the the Ozarks stand out because the Back to Land movement in the Ozarks seems to be a little bit, uh, maybe more successful than in other places. Um, and when I say Ozarks, I really do mean all of the Ozarks, not just what I wrote about here in, 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 in Arkansas. Um, but, you know, the national memory or the popular memory of the Back to Land movement and the country hippies and stuff is that everybody goes out, they spend a couple of months on a commune or a farm and it's sort of like easy rider and everybody's, you know, doing all these crazy things and then they leave because they get tired and they do whatever. Um, and yeah. they, they come back and they cut their hair off and they wear a suit and yeah. do whatever. Well, no, Ozark, everybody seems to stay for a really long time, um, which is, you know, I'm a native Ozarker. And so that's an interesting thing for me to, to look at. So it's like, nobody wants to come to the Ozarks. And so what in the world were people doing coming that, here? That brings up another part. Now, I'm not sure I was talking with you earlier before the book was, uh, I guess when you were getting started. And at that time, one of your major theses was that uh, uh, 
that not only uh, were the, these hippies um, somewhat successful, as you say, but they had help from mm-hmm. the hillbillies. Now, the, again, the popular uh, notion may be that there was a lot of antipathy, a lot of problems between the hips and the old timers. But it's not quite that simple, is it? No, and this is something that I was really interested to, to learn about. Um, the and I can't speak for the whole country, but I, I have a, I have, a, I have an idea that it's probably pretty true. Mm-hmm. Um, any that that in most places where the back to the land movement comes in, they serve as a little bit of a replacement generation, um, and 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 I, and I think that works in a couple of different ways. We got to remember that in the 1960s, a lot of the rural parts of the country were experiencing net out migration. So. This is the era that, that sort of the dawning of industrial agriculture writ large across the nation. And so rural communities are the ones that really hit, get hit hard by that, right? They're promised prosperity, and that prosperity doesn't really emerge, at least not in the way that we were told it was going to emerge. Um, and so the young generation of these old-time farmers all leave. They go to, they go to the bright lights in the big city. Um, and so there's all these skills. There's land. There is an ecology that no longer has a caretaker, um, and the back to the land generation comes in and while some of them have some experience with gardening or, or some come from farm country or whatever, most of them don't, they're a blank slate and they want to know these traditional skills mm-hmm. and the Ozarks, for whatever reason, we were deemed a, um, deemed a, like a, a, um, almost like a preservation module for, <laughs> for traditional livelihood, agrarian <laughs> livelihood. And, um, and they become, and, and maybe not close friends with all the old timers, but they don't become enemies. Yeah. They become tacit allies, if you will, on a lot of things from, from damming concerns to understanding how chemical agriculture is going to progress in the region. Um, and, and in particular, they become allies with um, the, 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 the hippies and the, and the hillbillies become allies when they're trying to understand what to do with all of these people who are retiring. And they come, they leave Chicago yeah. and they leave wherever and they come to the Ozarks and they go to the lake villages and they go to places like Bella Vista and elsewhere to set up retirement villages that are massively destructive when mm-hmm. it comes to... And have nothing to do with getting back to the land. Nothing to They're do with... They're just retiring. Yeah. And so they, they, they kind of form a tacit alliance. And, and it's been that way. You, you know, you can look at the history of some of the conversations between... Groups like the Newton County Wildlife Association and the current Save the Buffalo conversation. There's yeah. there's not always so friendships. the tacit alliances between the hillbillies and hitbillies. Yeah, not the not retirees. Not between the retirees. No, 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 no. The retirees they wanted to get out of Chicago to get away from you know right. long haired hippies and yeah. and all you know everybody yeah. else and so yeah. So one of the things I'm interested in, by the way, I should for the listeners I should come clean that that I'm in the hitbilly book, <laughs> and I'm back to the lander and I came up to the Arkansas Ozarks and in 1971 and one of the things that we're really interested I'm interested in uh, my background actually before I got into agriculture and horticulture was history and I always find it fascinating and sometimes very instructive to look at you know the central question of history is how do we get here so the thread you know the 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 thread that runs through all this the the, maybe even the hillbillies, you know, they're, they're, to some degree, they were probably refugees too. I know mm-hmm. that the Ozarks were really one of the last settled areas. I mean, most Western migration kind of passed over the Ozarks to a large degree, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it went north of us, you yeah. know, went through uh-huh. St. Louis and hits the trails. Right. And we have some that comes up through the Arkansas Valley, but, you know, like the, the Arkansas River Valley, but the Arkansas River Valley movement kind of mm-hmm. terminates to, to, to a degree with mm-hmm. Indian country, you know, or yeah. like ends with Indian country, rather. Right. And, um, but uh, and so it would be, 
you know, we have up through the 1830s, there's limited settlement comparatively compared to the big cropping areas on the eastern right. side of the state. Um, and it'll be early, you know, 1830s statehoodish for Arkansas uh-huh. right. that we start to see a, a larger boom in the population. Now, I could be totally wrong on some of those ideas. A friend of mine um, is a is sort of the grand master of Ozark's history, um, and, and he and Brooks would probably say, "Well, no, Jared, you're probably wrong there." But um, but for the most part, like the the, the intensification of settlement doesn't occur until yeah. until post Civil War. Yeah, um, and even that settlement is still mostly. Is it from hill folk from Appalachia? So that's the conversation that we. It, it is a lot of might, like kind of lateral migration out okay. of Appalachia over to the Ozarks. Um, and so we, those people started off. The hill folk in Appalachia started off. I'm thinking of whiskey rebellion. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to drink, bring this thread back to uh, nonconformism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a really strong tradition um, both in Appalachia and in the Ozarks. And if you know, we kind of continue the idea that. We have a high percentage of Scotch-Irish heritage in the Ozarks and Appalachia, which is generally true, um, but not as true as some people would like to make it out to be. Um, then, you know, we think back to, you know, the removal in the Scottish Highlands at the same time that the Ozarks are beginning to be settled highly. So this is where my family comes out of, mm-hmm. in part, um, and, and, and others. Like, there is, is a... There's a tradition of small crofting, small farming mm-hmm. um, on marginal land and, mm-hmm. and with marginal concern from the outside and a desire to have to maintain marginal concern. We don't, we don't want to be fooled with all that much, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and another, uh, another Ozark farmer and historian who lives out on the east edge of the Ozarks, um, Blake Perkins, he wrote a wonderful book called Hillbilly Hellraisers. Mm-hmm. And he traces the history of this idea of like, leave us, like, we're interested in... in engaging with the outside world when it serves us and suits us and protects our interests. Um, and as soon as that outside interference becomes uh, onerous and damages or endangers our way of life, then you're going to start to see us getting real upset, yeah. you know, and that's, and that, and he, and he, you know, and he, the, some of the story that I tell in the book dovetails quite, you know, in uh, with what he tells and in, in, in that same time period. And so, and that just reminds me, you know, that, that as a back to the lander hippie type, you know, we were the same way. You know, it's like, leave us alone. We were fed up with the larger mm-hmm. society. We're looking for a place to settle down. And quite frankly, it was usually just a pretty place. Yeah. But one of the things that made it pretty, of course, is that uh, conventional agriculture and the larger economy had just sort of bypassed it. Yeah. So we, we find a kindred spirit here, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So we're in the Ozarks. There's a back-to-the-land movement. You know, we're mostly... I have to say for myself, you know, as one of the hillbillies, whatever I am, was, am. Uh, we came here, like I said, primarily because the land was cheap and the land was pretty. Mm. I didn't realize at that point that there was this you know, hillbilly ethic uh, that I could have tied into. Well, there were other books that started to make that clear to me. The Foxfire books, you right. know, from Appalachia, the Whole Earth Catalog, you know, uh, Waxed eloquent about Kentucky. That's where I first yeah. ran into Wendell Berry. It was in the Holler's catalog. You yeah. know, this, this kind of uh, hippie generated, I guess there was an intellectual sub-subculture of hippies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that put out the, the last Holler's catalog and those. So we came here not realizing, you know, that we might have kindred spirits or allies here. But little by little, we started to realize we really appreciated that knowledge and like you've already talked about, we had a sort of patron saint. Mm-hmm. For us, it was Sam Ramsey. Right. The guy around the corner showed us how to work with horses. Right. Among other things. How to fix our chickens. By the way, it seemed like everything was, was uh, coal tar. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Cold tar. Yeah. Cold tar, some kind of engine grease, you know, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. your chickens, your yeah. bunions, your sore throat, Everything. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A little but still, yeah. you know, we really did. It's just like you said. We really valued what they knew. I, I, I remember being surprised, mm-hmm. you know, realizing that these guys still heated with wood. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Cool. Show me. Yeah. Uh, you guys are working with horses? Shoot. Cool. Show me. Yeah. You know, so again, like you said, we really valued their knowledge. And when they realized that, you know, that we valued them and what they knew. Mm-hmm. We were like instant friends. Yeah, but that's such a human story though, right? Like yeah. that's, that's one of the lovely things about, about uh, being a historian is that I get to read and learn about all the, like in the news so much we hear all the stories of human conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And, and these stories of human connection over similar interests or caring about what somebody else is interested in. Um, like that's, that's such a profoundly lovely story. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the other things that kind of makes the Ozark region kind of neat because by the time the 70s roll around, we had been, our region had been really over-essentialized. Um, people like Vance Randolph, who, mm-hmm. who was a, what, a, what an interesting folklorist he was, and his wife, Mary Celeste Parler, who in, in a lot of ways was a more valuable scholar, than, I, I think, and I may get, you know, get crucified by some of those arc studies. Don't worry, nobody's going to listen to this. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, because she collected all these beautiful folk songs, but... But um, they had essentialized us and told, you know, kind of told the world, this is who the Ozarks are. They're these sort of simpleton, Silver City characters. Right. Right? Um, dog patch. Dog patch and all this kind of Daisy stuff. Daisy May, yeah. You know, but, but underneath, you get, you, get, you get somebody that comes in as willing to, like, hang out for more than a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and, and ask some questions that get to the root of existence. And you start to find these human connections. And, and, these, and, these, and I think, and I, you know, just... From, a, from the old timers that I work with out on our place and, and elsewhere, like that's when you start asking those kinds of questions, mm-hmm. um, all the other stuff kind of fades away and it becomes about how do we best care for the land and for the community? Yeah. How, do we, how do we best, you know, agriculture and that Wendellberry culture idea of yeah. agriculture, how does that all function together? So it was a hit billy, you know, this, this land ethic then, this idea that mm-hmm. we're, that care for the land that we're going to, we may not even use the term sustainably back then. I don't remember when that first became the word. It seems like an 80s kind of thing. Yeah, I think it was. But, uh, you know, we became concerned for those things through books largely. We were disconnected. Mm-hmm. So we have this, the hillbilly culture that is really more or less connected. You know, you could take it all back to Northern England, Southern Scotland, mm-hmm. and maybe Ireland too. And uh, uh, there's sort of that thread that runs through it the whole time. Uh, for us... You know, I've, speaking for myself, but I think I can speak safely for other hitbillies, uh, we really felt um, disconnected. Mm-hmm. You know, the Vietnam War, huge in all this, uh, but then just, you know, the pollution that was going on. This is all before the first Earth Day and, mm-hmm. and the big environmental movements and such. And uh, moving back to the land was really a shock. We thought we knew what we were doing. Yeah. But, of course, we didn't. But we came to it with books. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a book lover, um, I, I, y'all can't see this because this is a podcast, but I uh, peppered the table here with books related to uh, uh, this Back to the Land movement. There's a whole earth catalog. There's a book called The Alternative about uh, uh, communes. There's a couple of Wendell Berry books. I've even got some uh, books here about Jefferson and his garden book. But this land ethic that you talk about, the one that, that, that was more or less intact with the hillbillies, uh, 
is based on self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have this other land ethic that comes to us from the founding fathers who were uh, rich. Mm-hmm. They weren't um, self Well, this, this is where it gets really interesting to me, is that if you read uh, Jefferson closely, of course, he is actually um, promoting or at least celebrating a sort of self-sufficient farming ethic, you know, that this democracy, this new experiment on the earth, on the planet, democracy in this country is not going to work without a set of literate small farmers. Mm-hmm. Why small farmers? You, you have a sense of that? Um, I think I know what Jefferson was about. But. Well, like there's a there's a certain measure of independence that comes with that. Like if yeah. you have a you've got a because at the time that he's writing, only landed people can vote, mm-hmm. um, and and the best way to ensure democratic participation is to ensure that um, as many landed men as and, and we have to use the gendered word very carefully here, right? Yes, it really was men, and <laughs> it really right. and it's racially bound as well. That's right, right? white sure men. Is. Um, and um, and so there's this idea, but then also um, Jefferson argues like um, some of the other founding fathers and some of these early conversations about small agrarian kind of ideals that there's a there's kind of a magic number too much acreage for one family means that there's no longer an ability to be self sufficient too less means you live too much too too little means you live in poverty. Wow. Um, so it, you think some of the founding fathers were saying the same thing? I know the Amish is what made me think of yeah, this right then. That's yeah. actually something that they'll openly. Yeah, no, the, the founding father. I mean, you know, the and I'm not an expert on the founding fathers, but I've, I've read pretty well in Jefferson and, uh-huh. and and Adams and a couple of the others. And the what they they don't like assign acreage necessarily uh-huh. to the right. conversation. Yeah, um, you know, like today we talk about 20 acres or you know 10 hectares or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, like around that 20 to 40 acre mark right. seems right. to be the magic number. Um, and, uh, but these guys, they, it, for them, it's very much this convert, it's this idea of, um, it's almost an ancient Greek idea. Like it's this idea of, you've got to have buy-in in the society. You've got to be a participant mm-hmm. in it in, in a way that you can, um, ensure that the people who are voting are, are going, at least in their minds, that the people who are voting are going to be voting with concern and with care is if they are economically linked to the system. And this is, so from the very beginning, we begin to have this linkage of the political idea and the economic idea, right? But it's rooted in this, in this farming ideal. Yeah. But it should be, you know, this is an ideal, right? It was never realized, right? right? right. In the communities where it is kind of realized, Appalachia and the Ozarks, we are poor, Always, you know, and this is something that my friend Blake points out in his book. So Appalachia gets all the press for being poor. Those are extra 10 percentage points poorer than Appalachia at almost any given point. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> we win again, um, you know, um, but it's but it's this idea like where yeah. where these yeoman traditions were kind of established, if you will. They did not meet the expectation. Now, there's all kinds of yeah. argument in, among historians, at least, as to why yeah. that's the case. But. Um, and I, I'm not even going to wade into that. I have no idea what I think of right. it. So. Well, that may be where we kind of pick up as, as uh, agronomists yeah. and, and the like here. Is that, yeah. you know, why were these not always successful in, in really su- sustaining a, a farm economy? Uh, I would maintain that, of course, it's outside pressures. But <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of I mean, For the Ozarks, at least, outside pressures are what push the farm yeah. communities. You know, like... Um, I've been up in arms lately about farmland disappearance and, right. and around here and... Um, and you know you can't you can't help but wonder if the reason why so many farmers are shutting down is because in the last thirty years or so we've seen about half the farmland go into development, you yeah. know, or, or be or be left fallow. You, you can't know? if you're trying to get into it, as you know, I know we're both buying land, and uh, you can't hope to pay for it with mm-hmm. uh, 
with the farm proceeds. And this apparently, you know, has almost always been the case. Although I ran across an interesting, well, I didn't realize Franklin was involved in this too. So you may have heard this quote before. It's written down as we don't have to imagine if it's really real or not. Yeah. It's real. <laughs> it says there's three ways for a, a nation to enrich them itself. Mm -hmm. You heard this? I think so. Yeah. Remind me. Yeah. One's war, yep. which is theft. The other is commerce, which is mostly cheating. Yeah. Says. <laughs> and the third is farming. Yeah. <laughs> the only honest way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, this is this is a debate that we see not just here. I mean, um, you know, England is going through, Britain as a whole is going through this conversation as they're going through Brexit right now. They're having one of the biggest points of contention we don't hear about on the news here is what to do with the common agricultural policy um, and how and what and, and in particular the medium and small farmers, so the people that own 130 acres or less in the British system, are asking the question. What, what happens to us? Because the, the chief advisors, people like Dieter Helm, who's a fellow at Oxford College, um, the chief advisors of the British government on all this are saying we need to abolish the common agricultural policy and establish a new policy of efficiencies in farming. Oh. Which, like, I, I mean, that, that efficiencies in farming is a problematic phrase. Like, Wendell, I, I, one of Wendell's phrases that I repeat over and again is beware creeping efficiency. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Because you're gonna efficiencies destroy culture. Yes. You know? And they destroy landscapes and they destroy time, sense of time and time and place. Okay, yeah, sure. Had to stop and think about that one. But yeah. And of course the other thing about the so called efficiency is that it's usually only efficient for the people that are at the at the helm, you mm -hmm. know, that are actually driving the bus. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me like it's usually based on uh, oh what's the term? Not out. Externalizing costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. you're, it, while it appears that it's more efficient, you're really dumping your pollution or your waste, or in your in your haste, you're causing erosion. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, to bring it back to sustainable ag, you know, yeah. it's more efficient to plow a thousand acres at once. <laughs> well, it's like forestry in the Ozarks, right? We were deforested and it caused irreparable damage to our, our limited topsoil. I yeah. mean, if anybody listening to this is from around here, you know, or has been through here, then we have very little topsoil. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you take all the trees off the slopes, then we're going to lose what little we've got left, you know? And yeah. the people that own the bottomland farms are the ones that are going to benefit from that because all the topsoil goes to them. So. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Well, again, that brings us back to sustainable agriculture and, you know, the tools of, of sustainable agriculture or, or agriculture period have traditionally always re, uh, involved some sort of tillage mm. and uh, in, in thin soils like the Ozarks, usually to disastrous effect. Mm -hmm. But of course, it doesn't have to be that way. And if we if we uh, harken back again to a man whose name we've already dropped a couple times, Wendell Berry, in his uh, I'm going to call it romantic and let you rebut me, his romantic attachment to horses. So I know, Jared, that you farm with horses too. <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's come clean again to our listeners. Jared's not just a his, uh, historian of, of some of these things. He's actually a farmer too, and he farms with a couple of Belgians. I do. We have a, So my wife and I run a small farm outside of Prairie Grove. We do it um, not badly, but probably not profitably <laughs> either. Uh, well, and, uh, you're in good company. You're in a lot of company. I'll put it that way. Uh, and we, uh, and I will say, we benefit greatly from the resources that Asher makes available. Um, from good. just from 
regional being able to call people like Guy and, and Margot, who lives up the who's the director here in the southeast office. Great little a, product placement there. Yeah, product placement for everybody. There's a for those of you that run small stock like sheep and goats and things like that. There's a wealth of publications, and I think Linda Coffee's been doing a, a yeah. series of weekly you know lessons on on parasite management. So, so there right. you go. Oh, you've been watching it. Yeah. Uh, no, well, I haven't been able to. I've been listening to it later. So Because yeah, I, I teach in the middle of all that. This is great. That's what yeah. this podcast is all about. That's right. Um, but yeah, so we have a team of draft horses, um, and it is a romantic notion um, <laughs> to work with draft animals. Um, I will say, though, that while it is romantic, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a heck of a lot harder to do than it seems, um, just from everything, learning how to set harnesses correct, and, and, and repairing old, you know, 100-year-old, in some cases, equipment, and modifying them to, to, you know, we don't do much tillage. Um, we just pile a garden and then everything else is we, uh, we, cause we run stock. We just deal with, with hay crops and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so our equipment needs are a little bit different than, than people who like do market gardening with, with out on the West coast with, with horses. But, yeah. um, a lot of this, I mean, when we look at a lot of statistics coming out from the UN FAO and looking at the food and agriculture organization, we look at a lot of the work on where we need to be thinking as climate change sort of lands on us more fully. Um, while there will probably always be some kind of a context in which we need the power of industrial agriculture to deal with mm-hmm. natural disasters and war and things like that, um, at that local scale, um, it's re- in, a, in a landscape like Arkansas, there, like the Ozarks at least, there's a reason why draft animals were 90% of the motive power on the farms until the 70s. Um, our landscape can't handle tractors safely. We just can't. Um, a dear, dear um, member of the of the uh, Democratic Party, you know, um, sort of a, a, a family in Washington County, yeah. just passed away because of a you know because of a tractor accident. He and it wasn't a lack of knowledge. I mean, he yeah, knew exactly no. how to be safe. Um, and it's not that you can't get hurt with horses. You can absolutely oh, yeah. get hurt with horses. Oh, yeah. I'm sitting here as a reminder yeah. of that. You yeah, know, you know. Uh, broken ribs, uh, still have a collarbone that never set properly. Yeah. All from horses, you know. Yeah, you can absolutely get you know, Gene, you know, on the one hand, you got Wendell Berry, who extols the virtue of the draft horse world and people like Lynn Miller and everything. But then you also have Gene, or and then you have Gene Logsdon, uh-huh. you know, who, the, the, the contrary farmer, who he, yeah. because of a bad accident, he wouldn't he wouldn't get behind a, behind a team yeah. again to save his yeah. life until he died, you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and he lived a happy and healthy life probably because of it, <laughs> yeah. but I think there's merit, there's merit in it. It provides a lot of, it provides manure for your farm. It, um, it forces you to slow down yep. and work in scale and yep. appropriate scale. And that, um, for, uh, for me, at least for my particular kind of character, being forced to be slow is very important and to pay attention. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that, again, beware of that creeping efficiency and. Efficiency and speed uh, usually are the, they go hand in hand, yeah. according to the larger culture. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, what was it? Oh yeah, the the, the Pimentel, a, a, a researcher at Cornell, has this handbook of, of energy utilization in agriculture, mm-hmm. and he says that the only form, only powered form of agriculture, uh, which is agriculture. <laughs> that uh, returns as many calories as it uses mm-hmm. is hand. Yeah, that hand makes sense. Foot. Yeah. And of course, now the horses are going to be a little bit different because, you know, ideally they're using land that we can't, we're not going to grow food, human food on everything. So they're grazing maybe yeah. something that's a little more marginal or uh, maybe the Belgians need some grain and such as that. But still, you know, it makes sense to me from having farmed as long as I have, which is 47 years now. 50 
that you're going to need a draft power of some some sort. Yeah, I think, um, and I think it all depends on your scale. You know, I think I think if you're if you're trying to be self sufficient, you should. And this is just a lesson from our life, and you know, mm-hmm. getting into farming over the last ten years, and then, and then from my family, um, you know, being poor farmers for five generations, six generations back, like um, self sufficiency, you got to first work with your hands because uh, um, there's not a good way I think that you can justify a 150 horsepower tractor in a in a kitchen garden. They just don't work together. Yeah, the tractor wheels will just smash the garden. Um, you know, and then I think, you know, I think, and again, I think this is the next, if, if we're looking at 20 acres or 40 acres, it's sort of like that sweet spot. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, I, I rarely turn my tractor on, especially if I've got the horses fit, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, the, the, the few things I need that kind of power for, um, I need to be moving slow and careful anyways and listening and paying attention and draft power makes me do that. Now, some people that's fine. I mean, they, they, they're, they're happy with a little tractor or whatever, or, you know, I mean, you know, a neighbor of mine, he's 84 and, and he's, he just, his thing is like, well, I just can't, I'm not, I can't lift a harness on a horse anymore. Like, yep. you know, and so, yeah. well, as a, as a hip billy myself, you know, you come back to the, to the land and uh, you have these romantic notions uh, and maybe they're not tempered by actual experience as they were not in my case. Um, and you get behind that horse and, uh, you don't really know what you're doing, and before you know it, you've 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 started a, a, a furrow, which becomes a ditch, which be, and you can do it with anything. Yeah, you can do it by hand. Yeah, I mean, human beings are incredibly resourceful at degrading the planet. Yeah, yeah, that's our history, I think, in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, but the other side of this too is that we are going to, if we're talking about something truly sustainable, uh, and in this larger sense. Uh, looking down the pike, looking at uh, the way our, our current agricultural system is run, you know, it's, let's let's admit it's all still based on uh, petrochemical mm-hmm. uh, energy. Uh, something's got to change and change big time. And if it were not for the mortgages, I still maintain that we could, you know, eke out a living. You know, if you yeah. didn't have to buy land on this. Well, and the inputs too. I think yeah. you know when you when you. Um... When you look at, at the the cost of, of inputs on large scale farms, um, and you know and I'm not I'm not conversant in the economies of a thousand acre farms and stuff like that, so I, somebody could probably correct me on that. But it, it seems to me that you're you're at a you're, there's, a, there's a set of diminishing returns, right? Where yep. you can you can maybe get a get a small you know like a small true profit, um, but at some point you're gonna have to because the cost of of a dicamba resistant seed goes up. Um, and then you have to, or you have to buy that camera resistant seed because your neighbor's using it. Um, then you have to, because that cost has gone up, you have to put in more acreage, which necessitates more equipment and like it becomes a spiraling deal, at least in my mind, you know, um, but, uh, that may not be, you know, my mind and reality are not always the same thing. <laughs> well, no, you bringing up, bringing up dicamba, bringing up, you know, the, this paradigm that we're working under is I think is really, uh, important here. You know, for the longest time, when I first jumped into uh, sustainable agriculture, it was the same time that I jumped into conventional agriculture. Well, not quite. You know, when I was just a hippie back to the lander was one thing. I quickly learned that I didn't know enough and I couldn't get it all from the old timers. And I came back to school here Mm -hmm. at the University of Arkansas. So I became steeped in, you know, the current science and technology of it all. Mm -hmm. So, and yet at the same time, I held on to my hippie ethic and certainly the larger conservation ethic uh, you know, soil conservation and things like that. And um, 
found myself uh, the butt of jokes, you know, at the, <laughs> in the horticulture department. You know, I, I was practicing uh, elfin farming or whiff and poof dust farming yeah. or, or something like that. Uh, and then, of course, still, uh, at that time, especially organic farming, I heard it referred to pejoratively as uh, faith-based yeah. farming. All right, let's turn that around a little bit. Let's talk, you know, Wendell Berry again and values, you know, hip billy values, uh, eternal values. Let's let's embrace the faith-based farming thing. You ever heard that before? Yeah. That organic farming is faith-based yeah. farming? Yeah, not in a while because, yeah. I mean, you know, we, now we've got a USDA board, so, you know, it can't be faith-based if it's approved by the USDA. Um you know, this for hippies, I really feel, especially the back to the land hippies, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to embrace the, uh, the uh, this, this, um, I'm going to acknowledge my membership of what I call the, the membership of this intellectual hippie group, you know, the Stuart Brand side and everything. We have a sometimes uneasy footing uh, with one foot, you know, firmly in science. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not so firmly, that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> and one foot back over here with... You know, romance, uh, art, culture, yeah. which is not always, you know, science-based. But what's more important in the end? Well, that's like a, that's a heck of a question. <laughs> what's yeah. more important? Well, I guess, well, let me go ahead and go a little bit. That's unfair, maybe. But I, I, you know, I wonder, farming without an ethic, farming without ethics, farming just based on, you know, the bottom line, you know, whether it's economics or efficiency or yeah. whatever, is, has well, not turned out so well. Yeah, I guess, and first, I, I should probably make a distinction about how I think about things, which I, I'm pretty sure you agree with as well, but, that I, I don't know any farmer, conventional or organic, that does not have a land ethic, that does not care very much about their farm, and does not care very much about their community. Um, and I also, um, I also, because I, I'm, 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 I'm making a conscious choice to um, to believe the best in people, <laughs> um, don't think I got some major faith calls for it. That's right. I really do think that some of the scientists, um, and such at companies like Bayer Monsanto, uh-huh. they are, they're looking down the, down the road. They're looking at the future of the planet population and climate change. And they're trying to figure out how do we feed people? Yeah. You know, how do we feed 11 billion people? Um, and so I think that, so I, so with that sort of like, I'm not, I think that there's a, I think that there is a land ethic that there that's there. I think there is a desire to do the right thing. What I think that we've lost because because of the intersection of a particular version of economics into how we describe and and preserve and put forward cultural ideas that that, that culture and economics don't necessarily work the same. We don't have a we don't really talk about cultural economics, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about political economics and agricultural mm-hmm. economics and da, 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 but we don't think about cultural economics or land economics. Um, and I, and what I would argue is that, and this is what I think that the, what I'm positing, at least in the book and what I posit on our farm and, and what my wife does and, and, and what I see in our community around here is that, um, when you begin, when you're pushed against a wall by an externality, like an economic system, you have to make a terrible decision. Do I keep the farm running? Um, even though the practices that I'm going to walk into, I maybe I believe the scientists, I believe what the extension service is telling me. These guys, they're my friends. I went to school with them. Da 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 da. da. Um, do I do I trust their like promise that 240 and da 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 are going to be fine for the water table and things like that? 
Um, or do I continue doing something that all the economists, all the advice I'm getting tells me will never turn a profit on my farm? And, and so, and I've, and I've watched some of my neighbors have to wrestle through this. They know that these things are not, they're not their favorite thing to do, but they don't know how else to keep their farm running. And this is especially poignant if you're looking at a century farm. So in Arkansas, we have a century farm program where, yeah. you, you know, you've had a farm that's been in the family and farmed, not just like set there, but farmed for over a hundred years, you'd be mm-hmm. century farmer. And so, um, and if you're looking at the fact that the farm population is still dropping drastically, um, and you're looking at how do you keep keep a farm running for the next mm-hmm. generation, you don't have a choice like in the in their mind. And so there is this there like what I what I would argue is that we have to figure out a, a system of cultural economics that allows for the value of continuity of farming to be to be to, of the the continuity of of um, that that has of, a value that the, the continuity itself has a yeah value. and I think that that you know when you listen to people like the Land Institute when they're when Wes Jackson is talking and, and when he and when when he and Wendell Berry put together the fifty year farm bill mm-hmm. that's part of that idea mm-hmm. when people like Aldo Leopold were writing that's part of the idea um, when people like the Savory Institute today are, yeah. are are working that's part of that idea how do we this culture of continuity this culture of agriculture and how do we how do we speak? How can we empower farmers to be they large or tiny to speak back to that system and and speak with their values and their cultural place? And right now, I don't think I haven't seen any statistics or any study by anybody that tells me that no matter the size of the farm, that a farmer and a community of farmers has the right to speak back. Wow. You know, yeah. Um, and well, let me go address this continuity thing from a very personal point yeah. of view, and from the hitbillies, not just me, of course. As I've already said, and as you know, mm-hmm. uh, most of us were uh, 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 cultural refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, and we came here without, for the most part, hardly any background in ag. I know right. that you've given that number in your book. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only one or two people that yeah. out of the hundreds that you yeah. interviewed that had any farm background. Yeah. The rest of us didn't know Jack. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so we're, again, we're asking these old, uh, uh, the old hillbillies in, in many cases, but, uh, you know, for us to, to find the thread that feels comfortable, we've got to, you know, maybe go back to our books. We would go back to, uh, to, um, you know, history and find that. And sometimes mm-hmm. we thought it was Thoreau. Sometimes mm-hmm. maybe we thought it was Jefferson uh, but try to learn this stuff, and yet there's still something you cannot learn from a book. You know, this kind of cultural continuity you're talking about. And this, I'm, as a fruit grower, that's my primary thing is apples and others, other fruits, mostly tree fruits. Uh, it's just a mystery to me sometimes uh, how they did it without conventional yeah. pesticides and such. Now, I've, over the years, I've figured this out, but... For the longest time, it's been a, a, a real mystery to me. And here's, here's a great example. The varieties themselves. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it just didn't seem to take any time at all from a historical perspective, or even now in my lifetime at age 67, for certain varieties to just disappear. There were varieties of grapes grown throughout the South mm-hmm. that people could grow without fungicides. And... Those varieties almost all disappeared after World War II. Mm-hmm. They were common before World War II, after World War II, when all our food started to be grown out there because of you know modern refrigeration, interstate highway system, all these other factors. Uh, 
so quickly this continuity of culture, in this case, cultivars, all from the same word, cultures, cultivars, these mm-hmm. varieties, the cultivars, disappear. Yeah. And so we, we lose this, this, this valuable knowledge. Here's a joke. Uh, they used to come into Atra all the time. You know, we have a uh, here at Atra, we have a one eight hundred line, and people call in and ask for information about how to farm. Well, we especially in the early days, we had so many back to the lander types, hippie farmers. Yeah, became a joke. We were never actually asked this particular question, but it it, it could have been asked: Is what's the organic way to put on a plow? <laughs> yeah. So you get my point. Is yeah. That, you know, we we wanted to come back to the land. And we wanted to uh, do right by nature. We had this wonderful, romantic, faith-based farming yeah. thing going on. Uh, but we didn't know how to hook up a plow. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. Our, our parents, our grandparents, and that got broken. Yeah. That thread. Yeah, absolutely. And Well, and that's, I mean, that's part of the... Continuity is a belief in... I mean, continuity is a belief. To believe that you have to have a continuity of a culture is fundamentally an active belief, right? A continuous... You're holding up continuous harmony by Wendell Berry, yeah. Which, uh, um, I think I have like four copies of that running around. I, think I keep one in my truck all the time, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, you have to... That continuity and that... that, that you, there's a lot you can learn from books and there's a lot that you can learn from these days you know you can google you can google everybody every way but the right way to do something usually and um <laughs> but that continuity for farming i think and then maybe this is and i assume this is true for most other 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 you know arts as well um and i firmly believe that farming is both a science and an art um because everything is everything is, despite what the industrialist tells everything is a little bit different on every farm you know yeah. Um, but that continuity is really crucial. You know, like we, on our farm, we do, we, we're a little bit crazy and we, we bale square bales, small square bales, and we don't mm-hmm. use a big grapple and all that. We, mm-hmm. Our farm isn't big enough. The scale doesn't permit that. What that does mean though, is that we have to have, I have, we have to know how our, you know, how this old fashioned equipment works and how to, what are the best ways to move everything around. Um, and we have to, we, we rely on, a, on an old continuity of community work. Where the community, our community, come and they help us. Does um, it ever scare you how tenuous that continuity it's, seems? It's connection? terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. As in a story, and I'll give you a chance here to uh, wave that flag a little bit or beat yeah. that drum. You know, I'm just astonished at my work that I do every day here at Atra. Uh, again, at how much you know knowledge has been lost. Uh, how much. So much of our efforts here at Atra mm-hmm. is finding these old ways. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if it's resistant varieties or how to work with horses. Uh, but when you realize how hard it is to find that information sometimes, it's scary. Yeah, it is. And then what also is maybe more scary to me is that we keep having, we keep, we lose our ability to search, to ask questions. And so we reinvent the wheel. You know, we were talking the other day about... Um, about how like all the there's all there's a plethora of new books that are coming out on mm-hmm. on sustainable agriculture, yeah. agriculture, and most of them are really lovely to read and they're put out by lovely presses and they you know have beautiful illustrations and things like that. But in so many of them, if you think, well, if I just go back thirty or forty years and pick up something, then it's probably going to say, yep, relatively the same. You know, we might have like a new understanding of the soil science or something like that that mm-hmm. that, that modern chemistry has given us or whatever. Um, but we re- humanity wants to reinvent the wheel, you know, yeah. like we're going to, we're going to make a better circle. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think sometimes it's useful, you know, it's sometimes like, because you know, there's, you know, there's it a, must just be packaging because I, I see this all the time here. Yeah. Like we've got books come across our desks yeah. all the time and I'll pick up one. I'm not going to mention any names, but, uh, uh, 
you know, the first half of the book is just stuff that, yeah, no offense to anyone, it's still good information, but yeah. I've already read. Yeah, and it may go back again, as we've already said, to Plutarch. You yeah, know? <laughs> we, well, we go back a long way. Yeah, you read. You know, um, we take Small Farmers Journal um, at, at our house, and uh, and we. Is go it back. still coming out new? It's still coming out and new. Is it still Lynn Miller? Still Lynn Miller. It's all wow. in the family. Um, I, I'm actually, I've been, I've been. Um, he's been very gracious to answer some questions for me via email, so that's been very, very kind of him. Um, but they, um, you know, you go back and you read those. Not even the really old issues, just issues from the '90s. Uh-huh. Um, and he's, he's, they're not publishing new stuff he's reprinting yeah good sir albert howard and he's reprinting yep. you know some of these older um mm-hmm. these older ideas and some of it's because it's interesting and he doesn't want the knowledge to be lost some of it's because there's not like you know the for draft horse farming and and uh and and, and harness care and care of harnessed animals mm-hmm. one of the best sources still is the old cavalry farrier book yeah you know um and it's it's not the newest it's not got the most updated animal health stuff in it but the techniques the basic things the basic uh-huh. kind of gut checks to pay attention for um that's the one that's i'll tell you the, the one from, from i spent a lot of my time with pest control and that's part of it's an artifact of being a fruit grower <laughs> right and, and the standards our cultural standards uh for fruit you know it's got to be perfect and uh without any dings or mars or whatever so um Again, World War II mm. seems to be this real watershed yeah. period. And all of our, uh, you know, it's not that there weren't some pesticides before World War II. They had that wonderful lead arsenate stuff yeah. and, and yeah. copper and sulfur and things. But still, uh, all the modern pesticides, herbicides, pesticides, all of them came online and, and changed farming mm-hmm. about World War II. Well, in pest control, up to that time, pest control was, was you know, we'd call it integrated pest management now, but it was very elegant. Mm-hmm. It was applied ecological knowledge. And then when DDT came around, it was just, let's fog it with uh, pesticides. And uh, there were, again, this huge disjunct uh, in in the continuity of knowledge. It was just like for 20 or 30 years, it was just spray and pray or spray and count if you were a a researcher. And now, I won't say just now, it's, there was always this going on in the background, whether it was biocontrol or integrated pest management, but we're, we're coming back around to that. I'm going back and just was reminded the other day, looking at, at Jefferson's garden book, you know, how he dealt with the plum curculio. I said, oh, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> in my own mind. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like disjuncture between the, agri- the agrarian culture and the industrial culture, yeah. right? Yeah. And, the, and the industrial culture really was a function of post-war decommissioning. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't decommission the factories, right? We didn't decommission right. the surplus. And so we have all these surplus chemicals and we have all these surplus, um, you know, engine <sighs> factories and, and, and frame factories and whatever. And so, you're, you know, the, that, that moment, we, we, one of the reasons why, I know Wendell Berry has talked about this, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a horse logger over in Kentucky. His name is... Um, uh, Jason Rutledge, who's kind of one of the main main kind of guys working over with Sterling College and their work now as well. Um, but they all posit that we don't have any true studies of the efficiency or lack thereof of horse or of draft animal-powered agriculture. Because at the point when we would have begun paying attention to that is the same point when tractors became... This is their sum, sum, no, summation, is you know? Fascinating, yeah. Um, so we don't have any we don't have any true studies of, of the efficiencies of these 100-year-old machines. Uh-huh. You know, like a McCormick number 9 mower or Big yeah. 4 or whatever from John Deere. Um, right. and, and, uh, and some of these other things. And, and, um, and in particular, efficiencies at scale. 
efficiencies at appropriate uh-huh. scale for yeoman farming. Yeah. Right? Or if you're working on your own farm, there's going to be efficiencies without externalization. Exactly. Because you're not going to just be throwing crap away uh-uh. on mm-hmm. your own farm. Yeah. And so we don't have any of these studies because the industrial yeah. system came through at the same time that the population, the GI Bill hits, and we, we begin to see the suburbanization of America yeah. um, and, and, and all these different things. They all kind of hit at the same time. And yeah. historians are really only just now, historians of modern America... Are only we're only just now beginning to pull at these threads, and for too long we focused on the political side, yeah. um, and it's really only been in the last fifteen or twenty years that people have been pulling at um, the threads to understand well, what does this mean for minority communities in the South? What does this mean for um, as we as we have this growth of industrial waste? Where does that stuff go? And so we we've been getting these wonderful histories of. Uh, wonderfully terrifying histories of where waste has been dumped next to African American communities in the Delta or oh, yeah. you know, elsewhere, all these different things like that, or, or on Native American reservations. Or even so. where this stuff comes from. Yeah. It's industrialism. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, uh, again, back to pest control, it seems to be my big thing as a fruit drawer. You know, we, before where the answers may have been on farm, and I'm yeah. thinking about this particular thing that I rediscovered in Jefferson's garden book. Yeah. You know, where you actually just went out and shook the trees and gathered the plump coculios in, yeah. in a canvas, you know, and, and did away with them. Yeah. Now we've got, uh, not only is it not on farm, it's from far away somewhere. You yeah. know, it's from a factory maybe in India yeah. where they're making, you know, whatever synthetic pesticide yeah. and endangering that environment in India, those people that make the stuff. Then it comes over here, yeah. you know, it's on the farm. It's a completely off-farm purchase yeah. product. Uh, and we've forgotten all the, the reverberations, all the, the um, waves effect, uh, that were begun by the production of that yeah. material. Yeah. And not to mention then its effect in the environment. Well, and this is a question that organic agriculture, I think, is going to have to deal with. A friend of yeah. ours, some friends of ours that are they're, they're draft power farmers in, outside of Seattle, and they... Um, and one of the things that when they were in town last, we were chatting with, they were talking about the, the growth of plastic culture. Um, <laughs> Boy, you just hit it for me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I'm used to, around here, I'm used to thinking about in the context of, of hoop houses and stuff like yeah. that. And they're talking about in the West Coast area, their friends that farm in Oregon and, and throughout oh, California, God. they're using it as, like the Amish have been doing, they use it as mulch control. I know. And so they have these mountains of plastic wastes. And so uh, as, a, do as an old hippie. And I hear plastic culture. Yeah. That just like, that's yeah. the fingernails on a blackboard, you know, because well, that was everything that we stood against was the plastic culture. That's what we called it. Yeah. And now, and it's, it's an, it's an economic boon to our local farmers. Yeah. You know, I don't have a hoop house, but yeah. I know plenty of friends and yeah. family that do. I understand the advantages and everything. But again, that plastic is created somewhere. Yeah. It's some factory somewhere. And it's a petrochemical. It's a petrochemical. Right. So there's all these. And then well, we can even move beyond that. You know, you can talk about harvesting seaweed and shipping it across the country or fishing mulching. You know, like all these different things. <laughs> Aside from the cost to the farmer. Right? And so, but this is what we lost, yes. I think, you know, this under, this ability for us to be able to relocalize or, or, or reprioritize the localization mm-hmm. of, of our culture. Um and this is something I work with, you know, I taught a class last year on anti-globalization. And one of the big things I circled back around to was that, was that, that part of the anti-global movement, if we, we kind of excise the, 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 some of the political conversations about, you know, how we link to, how we link together or not, you know, globally economics through global economics, things like that, is that the, that part of what this movement is asking for, whether they're on the right side of the political spectrum or on the left side of the political spectrum, is for the relocalization of their of themselves right yeah. they feel it reminds me of a story um 
some friends of ours that used to do development work in South Africa, they were coming back from a project way out in the bush. Uh, and they'd seen all these people stop on the side of the road and they couldn't figure out why because there weren't buses or anything like that. And finally, they stopped because, you know, at some point you just have to ask a question. Well, why are you stopped here? Um, and they were asking this woman um, this. And she said, well, I'm resting. I'm waiting. And so well, what are you waiting for? Like, there's no bus. She said, I'm waiting for my soul to catch up with my body because I've been moving at a pace that has disconnected my body from my soul. And so what, 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 what I, as a historian, when I see, when I look backwards, um, and, you know, over the last 40, 50, really since World War II to today, mm-hmm. is that our community, and I can't speak for any other community, I only really speak for the Ozarks, so I only really speak for, for you know, for, for the kind of community of people that I live within, is that we have moved so fast that our soul has disconnected itself from our body, and we have yet to be able to, to realize in a collective mass that we need to sit down on the side of the road um, or on the side of the river and wait for that to come back and join us again, right? I'm going to call that quits. That was beautiful, Jared, and you just summed up some really important uh, issues, values for us. Thank you for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Depending on the platform you're listening on, if you can, be sure to rate us and leave a review or comment. For more information on this topic, you can contact Guy Ames directly at guya at ncat.org. That's G-U-Y-A at N-C-A-T dot O-R-G. And in the notes below, you'll find a link to Jared Phillips' book, Hip Billies, Deep Revolution in the Arkansas Ozark, in addition to other useful links to ATRA resources and publications. Please call ATRA with any and all of your sustainable agriculture questions at 1-800-346-9140 or email us at askanag at ncat.org. That's A-S-K-A-N-A-G at N-C-A-T dot O-R-G. Our two dozen specialists can help you with a vast array of topics, everything from farm planning to pest management, produce to livestock, soils to aquaculture. And you can get in touch with them and find our other extensive and free sustainable agriculture publications, webinars, videos, and other resources at ATRA's website at www.atra.ncat.org. That's www.attra.ncat.org. We'll catch you next week. And until then, keep on farming.